This is the Sunday Catholic Word, a production of Catholic Answers, the only podcast to look at the Sunday Mass readings from an apologetics perspective. Hey, 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 everyone. Welcome to the Sunday Catholic Word, a podcast where we reflect on the upcoming Sunday Mass readings and pick out the details that are relevant for explaining and defending the faith. In other words, what's the Liturgy of the Word got to do with apologetics? This is the podcast to answer that question. I'm Carlo Broussard, staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers and the host for this podcast. In this episode, we're going to do some biblical apologetics that's relevant for this upcoming Sunday's feast day, Mary, Mother of God. Now, our focus won't be on the gospel itself, but rather on the second reading from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And also, we're going to go outside the readings for this feast and look at the key, the key, biblical passage that the Church has looked to throughout history for biblical support of Mary's divine motherhood, and that is Luke chapter 1, verse 43. Obviously, the feast day gives us an opportunity to do this. But let's start with the second reading for the Liturgy of the Word for Mary, Mother of God, and that comes from Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Here's what Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to ransom those under the law so that we might receive adoption. As proof that you are children, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child, and if a child, then also an heir through God. The key here is that God's son is said to be, quote, born of a woman, close quote. Now, there are two things to unpack here. First, assuming that we accept early conciliar Christology, like that of the Council of Nicaea, God's son, the word, is divine, and thus is properly called God. Second, any woman who gives birth to a person, is a mother to the person to whom she gives birth, right? So those are the two things we need to unpack here. Now, with these two things in place, we can reason as follows. Premise one, any woman who gives birth to a person is a mother to the person to whom she gives birth. Premise two, Mary gave birth to God's son. Conclusion one, therefore, Mary is the mother of God's son. Premise three, God's Son is divine, and thus is properly called God. Conclusion two, therefore, Mary is the mother of God. Now, with the argument laid out like this, it becomes clear what someone would have to deny if the person wants to deny Mary is the mother of God. Such a person would have to deny either, premise one, in which case a mother is someone who does not give birth to a person, absurd, premise two, in which case Mary didn't give birth to God's son, contrary to scripture, or premise three, in which case God's son is not divine, right? And so and these are things we, we can't deny. Common sense tells us that we can't deny premise one, the very definition of a biological mother is someone who gives birth to a person. That's clear. No Christian can deny premise two, without denying an essential truth of the Bible, a truth that Paul makes explicit in this text. God sent his son, born of a woman. And finally, with regard to premise three, no Christian can deny the divinity of God's son, the Word. Remember, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At the heart of Christianity is the claim that Jesus is God. 
Not only that he's his son, but that he's his son by nature, implying that he is equal to the Father in the very divine essence and the divine essay, the very existence or infinite reality that God is. So in conclusion here, Galatians 4, 4 through 7 provides a biblical basis for belief that Mary is indeed the mother of God. Hence the reason why it's the second reading for this great feast day, Mary, mother of God. Now, let's turn to the classic text that's used to support Mary, mother of God, and that is Luke 1.43. Obviously, we're going outside the boundaries of the liturgy of the word for this feast day, but I think this feast day provides for us an opportunity to reflect upon Luke 1.43 because it is essential to our conversations with our Protestant brothers and sisters concerning Mary's divine motherhood, being mother of God. Now, it's important to note at the outset here that the Catechism of the Catholic Church actually appeals to Luke 1.43 as biblical support for the dogma of Mary, Mother of God, in paragraphs 448, 495, and 2677. There, Elizabeth, inspired by the Holy Spirit, exclaims to Mary, who just arrived in her presence, Why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Since Elizabeth was a good Jew, and Jews normally use the word Lord in the place of the Tetragrammaton, God's name, Yahweh, Elizabeth is calling Mary the mother of God. Therefore, it would seem that we have a possible biblical foundation for the dogma of Mary, mother of God. Hence the reason why the Catechism and Christians throughout the tradition have always appealed to Luke 143 as biblical support for Mary, mother of God. But there are some, there's a counter here. There are actually many comebacks uh, that a minority within the Protestant community have to the belief Mary is the mother of God, but there's really only one counter-argument made to this passage in Luke 1.43 for a scriptural justification of Mary as the mother of God. It targets the assumption that Lord is intended by Elizabeth to refer to Almighty God. Because if you noticed in the common argument that we present as Catholics, appealing to Luke 143, we're assuming that when Mary says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me, that she's using the title Lord in reference as a divine title in reference to Almighty God. But some Protestants challenge that assumption. So, for example, Protestant Bible scholar Walter L. Liefeld argues that we shouldn't interpret this as a reference to Mary, mother of God. His alternative interpretation, as it is for others, is that Elizabeth was referring to Jesus as her Messiah. Here's what he writes. Nowhere in the New Testament, and by the way, this is coming from his, um, his chapter on Luke in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, Matthew, Mark, Luke, volume 8, page 834. He writes this, Nowhere in the New Testament is Mary called mother of God. Deity is not confined to the person of Jesus. We may say Jesus is God, but not all of God is Jesus. She was, however, the mother of Jesus, the Messiah and Lord. And the evidence he gives here is the fact that Luke frequently uses Lord as a title. 95 out of 166 occurrences in the synoptics and not everyone is charged with a divine meaning. And Lifefield uh, argues Jesus is called Lord elsewhere in the Luke and birth narrative in a non-divine way in Luke 2.11. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So how do we respond 
to this counter-argument that Lord is being used here most likely in a non-divine way, which would undercut the Catholic argument here in appealing to Luke 143 for Mary, Mother of God. Well, immediately in responding to this objection, just very briefly, notice Liefeld appeal, appeals to Luke 2.11 and says that Lord is being used there in a, in a non-divine way. Well, it's actually not clear whether it's being used in a divine or a non-divine way. There's nothing in the text that suggests either interpretation. Liefeld simply asserts its non-divine use here without argumentation. So given the ambiguity, we can dismiss this text as evidence for Liefeld's interpretation or conclusion. Now, the second response is that it's not the word itself, but how it's being used, namely the parallels that Luke is drawing with the Ark of the Covenant. There's no doubt that the Greek word translated Lord Kyrios can be used and is used in a non-divine way in the New Testament. Just one example, 1 Corinthians 8, 5 there. And even by Luke, in Luke 12, 36, 37, 42, 43, 45, 46, 47, some have said that it's being used in a non-divine way. And it's reasonable to conclude that. However, it's not the word by itself that indicates that Mary is the mother of God. It's how Luke sees Elizabeth using it. There are several details in the text that indicate that Luke is drawing a parallel between Mary and the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant. This has been pointed out by many apologists. It's very well articulated, I might say, by my colleague and good friend Tim Staples in his book, Behold Your Mother. Check it out. He gives a litany of all the parallels. I'm just going to share a few with you to give you a sample. So take Elizabeth's words themselves. They're almost perfectly, they almost perfectly mirror David's words in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 9, when he says in the presence of the ark, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Right? Almost verbatim. Other parallels include John the Baptist leaping for joy in the presence of Mary in Luke 144, and David, quote-unquote, making Mary before the ark in 2 Samuel 6, 5. According to Luke 139, Mary remains with Elizabeth for three months. Very similar to how the ark remained in the house of Obedidim for the same amount of time, according to 2 Samuel 6.11. So there's clear parallels being drawn here between Mary and the Ark of the Covenant. Since Luke is paralleling Elizabeth's Mother of my Lord cry with David's the Ark of the Lord cry, it stands to reason that Luke intends for us to take Elizabeth's cry as a reference to Almighty God. Lord, in the phrase Ark of the Lord, was not a reference to the Messiah. The Ark was the Ark of Almighty God. Therefore, we have good reason to interpret Luke 143 as a reference to Mary being the Mother of God, contrary to Liefeld's claim. Now, someone might object here. Well, if you're going to take some parallels with the Ark of the Covenant, well, then you need to take all of them. Otherwise, you're just, you know, cherry-picking and being arbitrary in your selection. Protestant apologist James White poses um, this challenge at the use of Mary as the new Ark of the Covenant for support of Mary's sinlessness, right? Often we as apologists, we appeal to Mary and the Ark of the Covenant to support Mary's sinlessness. And Mr. White poses a challenge to that to, to the appeal to the parallels for Mary's sinlessness, but since it's directed at Mary as the new Ark of the Covenant, the counter-argument can be utilized for whatever inferences 
a Catholic might make from Mary being the new Ark of the Covenant, such as Mary, Mother of God, in this case in Luke 1.43. Here's how White argues. He argues that if we draw parallels between Mary and the Ark of the Covenant, then we'll be pushed to affirm absurdity. So here's a quote from his book, uh, the Roman Catholic Controversy, page 205. He writes this, Must Mary have been stolen by God's enemies for a time so that she could be brought back to the people of God with great rejoicing? Referencing 2 Samuel 6, 14-15, the point being, hey, the ark was stolen by God's enemies for a time. If you're going to make all these parallels between the ark and Mary, then you're going to have to say that Mary was stolen by God's enemies for a period of time. He goes on to write this, Who was Mary's Uzzah? Referencing 2 Samuel 6, 3-8. Remember, there was an, uh, the guy named Uzzah touched the ark. He dropped dead. Anybody touching Mary and dropping dead? No. Hence the absurdity. The implication being, <laughs> he goes on. In reference to Catholic apologist Patrick Madrid, Madrid draws a further parallel. He's referring to a work that Madrid had whenever he wrote and articulating these parallels. So he's critiquing Madrid. Madrid draws a further parallel between the three months the Ark was with uh, Obedidim and the three months Mary was with Elizabeth. What then is the parallel with David's action of sacrificing a bull and a fattened calf when those who were carrying the Ark had taken six steps? Referencing 2 Samuel 6.13. White charges that the use of Mary as the new Ark of the Covenant is violating the rules of scriptural interpretation since he perceives it as picking and choosing, quote, those aspects of Mary's life a Catholic wishes to parallel in the Ark and those which he does not, close quote. You get the gist of the argument, right? So how do we respond to this? Well, our response, as I point out in my book, Meeting the Protestant Response, How to Answer Common Comebacks to Catholic Arguments, this comeback, in this comeback, there's a hidden premise, right? And the premise is false. The hidden premise is this. Some parallels require all parallels. But why is this false? Why do I think it's false? Well, the New Testament authors themselves don't honor the principle contained in this hidden premise. Consider the first two verses of Hosea 11. Quote, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Notice how Matthew takes the phrase, Out of Egypt I called my son, in the first statement, as a prefigurement of baby Jesus' return from the flight to Egypt. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Yet Matthew did not intend the latter part of the passage to refer to Jesus. Jesus didn't go away from God, sacrifice to the Baals, and burn incense to their images. And there are numerous examples of this in the New Testament's use of the old. Whenever prophetic foreshadowing is in play, some elements foreshadow and some don't. There are continuities and discontinuities. That's just the nature of prophetic foreshadowing. And the New Testament authors often pick and chose some and did not pick and choose others. So if the New Testament authors employ this type of hermeneutic when relating the Old Testament to the New and the New to the Old, well, then it's legitimate for us Catholics to do the same, to draw some parallels between Mary and the Ark of the Covenant, and not to draw other parallels. And by the way, one final thought. 
It is not us who are drawing the parallels to the Ark of the Covenant. It is Luke who is clearly drawing the parallels. And it is Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, who is picking and choosing some parallels and not picking and choosing other parallels. So, my friends, when dealing with Christians who deny Mary as the mother of God, we have Galatians 4, 4 through 7, and Luke 143 to share with them as biblical evidence for the dogma. Well, that does it, my friends, for this episode of the Sunday Catholic Word. Thank you so much for subscribing to the podcast, and please be sure to tell your friends about it and invite them to subscribe as well. I hope that you have a great feast of Mary, Mother of God. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Catholic Word. Find more great shows by visiting catholicanswerspodcasts.com or just search for Catholic Answers wherever you listen to podcasts.